Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We are very, very pleased to kick off our BA Top 10 Prospects series. And to do that, we are joined today by Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. Alex has written the Red Sox chapter of the Prospect Handbook for us at BA for a couple of years now. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. The Red Sox have had a really interesting year, really kind of remarkable how much things can change just in one calendar year. At this time a year ago, they were coming off a last place finish in the AL East with arguably one of the worst pitching staffs in team history. It was hard to watch sometimes. The farm system was okay, but it wasn't exceptional. Fast forward a year, they won 92 games. They reached the American League Championship Series, and their farm system still has most of the top players who took a step forward, and they got a key boost with one particularly talented draft pick. I do feel like from the outside looking in, all of a sudden, things look really, really rosy for the Red Sox, both present and future. I think clearly they're rosier than they were. Uh, I think, you know, we're in terms of the top level of their farm system, uh, the one addition is uh, exactly who you've cited, Marcelo Mayer, uh, you know, being being drafted with the number four overall selection uh, makes a farm system look different when you can arguably say that you added the top talent in, in a given amateur draft. Um, on top of that, it was a really good developmental year for the other guys at the top, uh, certainly for Tristan Cassis as he bounced around the world, definitely for Nick York, who, uh, in, the, in the words of one scout I, uh, I talked to, the Red Sox can point a middle finger at everyone who doubted, uh, who doubted the, uh, the, uh, the merits of their selection of Nick York in the first round in the 2020 draft. Um, you know, Jaron Duran was really good in AAA, did not have uh, endured a rocky transition to the big leagues, but I think we saw that with most rookies this, uh, this year, um, given uh, any number of reasons. So uh, I, I do think that they look like, and I, I would also say that um, among guys who are no longer eligible for the prospect list, uh, the development of Tanner Houck and Garrett Whitlock during the season gave evidence that the Red Sox who've had a, who've really had a difficult time helping pitchers transition from the minors to the big league successfully for a long period of time. Uh, maybe there's, there's evidence that they might be getting beyond that in helping some pitchers actually succeed at the big league level, uh, particularly Houck, who is the homegrown guy. Whitlock, they got a little bit lucky that he was available via the Rule 5, um, but they certainly helped him work on his mix, uh, improve the depth of his changeup, improve the, quality, the shape of his slider a little bit. So you're seeing a team that has, a, that, that has had some player development successes in helping guys to, uh, to continue their path up, which gives them a better long-term outlook. Of course, they've also employed a mechanism that they simply had not for years and years and years, unless they were, uh, unless they were uh, well out of the race, which is they're trading for prospects now, which is something that we haven't seen them do. So uh, Chaim Bloom came on with the intention of building the depth in their system. He's unquestionably done that. We'll see what exactly the impact is of some of those depth acquisitions. But um, in terms of the longer term outlook, Clearly on the up and up in terms of the, it, it's funny, there's almost, it, it's almost harder to make sense of who they are as a big league team moving forward because um, there's a lot that's unresolved about their offseason right now and whether or not they're going to be able to build upon uh, this surprisingly good 2021 season at the major league level, which I don't think anyone saw coming. 
Yeah, absolutely. It was certainly one of the surprises of the season. But you mentioned getting some of those young guys up and having them contribute was a big part of it. Tanner Houck really, really stabilized the back of the rotation. Even Bobby Dahlbeck, obviously the batting average and on-base percentage were lower than you'd like them to be, but he really turned it on really from June on and still had a pretty good rookie year on the whole. So half the battle is getting talent into the farm system, but you can argue really more than half the battle is successfully transitioning it to the major leagues. And the things were pretty good in 2021. As we move into the future a little bit, you mentioned Marcelo Mayer, Tristan Cassis, Nick York, a really good trio of prospects at the top. Ultimately, Marcelo Mayer ended up as the number one prospect in this system. How much discussion was there between him and these other guys? And ultimately, what was it that put him over the top? I had Cassis at number one through a pretty significant part of the process. There's a high probability, really good floor going with Cassis at this point. Uh, you know who he is. There's uh, there's a lot of reason to have faith in his ability to continue to develop. He's um, he is in terms of his commitment to improvement. Um, he's pretty remarkable. He's uh, he is a very different kind of hitter because uh, of the versatility of his approach and the fact that he uh, he really relishes the idea of being um, a a well-rounded hitter who has a lot of power, as opposed to a power hitter who has other uh, secondary attributes. Um, he's He's really interesting, and he's gotten up to AAA, and it's not that long until he's going to be, uh, until he has a pretty good chance of finding his way into the middle of the Red Sox lineup for a number of years to come. Um, so I was, I was pretty, I found his track record really compelling through a lot of the process, but as I got down, you know, you think about the tools that, that Mayer has, and they're, they're so good. They're so good. You're talking about a guy who might have been the number one overall pick in the draft, uh, if if a team other than in, with with another team picking at the top, and the Pirates certainly considered him, even though they had uh, they had Davis at, at the top of their board, just you know setting aside all the considerations of signability and everything else. But um, you know he's he's a he's a special talent potentially, right? Like there are some uncertainties that are associated with uh, with having scouted in the in the post pandemic year, um, just as there were in the year that had no baseball because of the pandemic, but um, the tools are loud, loud, loud. And if this would have been Tristan, the, the year had Tristan Cassis gone to college, this would have been his draft year, right? In 2021, he would have been in, he would have been in the conversation. So uh, to me, if you, in talking to a lot of, uh, to a lot of evaluators, you know, would you take Mayer or Cassis 1-1 if you would have had that opportunity this year? Uh, I, I think virtually most of the people, not everyone, most of the people said Mayer. Yeah, and that's a testament to Marcelo Mayer, not any kind of knock on Tristan Cassis. As you mentioned, he's a tremendous, tremendous prospect, went and played for Team USA this year and was among the tournament leaders in home runs in the Olympics. Uh, I did a Q&A with Mike Socha where Socha identified Cassis as the highest upside player that was on Team USA. Uh, the year he put together, again, as a 21-year-old, double-A, triple-A, and in the fall league, truly remarkable. Uh, but Marcelo Mayer, being out here in Southern California, I have gotten to watch him a lot over the last few years. And there's no question this is a really, really special talent. I think what stands out is it's not just tools, tools, tools. He's also remarkably polished. It's big tools with maturity, with control, with just a complete mastery of what he's doing, both in the batter's box and in the field. And that is what makes him so unique, at least from my perspective, is it's not just this twitchy explosiveness, but he still has to learn to play the game. He's so far advanced in terms of just his baseball IQ 
his instinct, his knowledge, and then you add the tools on top of it, that's when something really special can happen. Yeah, I think that, you know, he, right, it, his, it's not tools, it's skills, right? Like there's, there is something that's wonder, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time, um, you know, especially in the amateur world, especially in the, in the high school world, uh, so much of an evaluation is based on, uh, on what, guy can basic, what's, what players can basically do in a combine-ish uh, setting. But uh, for Mayer, like, it is the way that he flows around the field, that, he, uh, that there's a fluidity. Like, he's not fast, right? Like, but he's a really good shortstop because he's such an instinctual guy and because, uh, and because he's really synced up well physically in terms of, you know, in terms of how he reaches for the ball and how the transfer works and how, uh, and how he's able to maintain, maintain and create balance uh, when he's throwing, even if he's throw, even if it's, uh, even if it's an off balance throw, he can get his arm into the right slot. Like there's just uh, a lot of stuff that works well together physically so that there are playable skills as opposed to just like these great physical attributes. Um, and he's right. And he distinguished himself, right? Like the fact that there were, uh, there have been a number of scouts on him for a number of years, right? Because uh, at his at uh, at East Lake High School where he played, there was, as you know well, uh, there was a first rounder, a, a high first rounder in 2019, um, who was on his on his same team. Scouts were flying in to see him all over the place. He was getting cross checked as a sophomore, and there were a lot of people who came out saying that a guy who ended up in the top of the first round, in the top half of the first round, was the second best player on that team behind a sophomore shortstop. So that, that tells you something. That's an interesting apples to apples comparison. I actually have a story. The first time I ever heard the name Marcelo Mayer, he was a freshman at Eastlake High School. They were playing Lacosta Cannon, which is another very good program up in Carlsbad. And the main draw that day actually was neither Mayer nor Cavaco. It was a pitching matchup between Grant Holman, who eventually went to Cal and was drafted this year by the A's, and Spencer Jones, who was a talented two-way player drafted by the Angels that year and now is at Vanderbilt. Everyone was there to see these two pitchers. And on the left side of the infield for Eastlake, you're seeing Keone Cavaco and Marcelo Mayer. And just being from San Diego, knowing Eastlake High School and level of talent, it's really, really rare to see a freshman starting on a varsity team at Eastlake High School at any position. And for him to be starting at shortstop was pretty remarkable. So that jumped out immediately. Watching a few at-bats, he's up there just poking good fastballs from a lefty into left field the opposite way. And two scouts in front of me turned to each other and said, this kid's going to be a first-round pick in three years. And here we are. I mean, this is someone who has had a lot of eyes on him for a long time. He's consistently performed. And, you know, sometimes you see guys who look great as freshmen and they kind of peak and they don't really ever – grow and deliver and become what people thought they could be as high school seniors, but he did. And uh, on the whole, you look at the track record, the tools, the skills, it's all there. And like you said, this is a great kind of fun exercise when you have two players who are really, really good at the top trying to pick out who's number one, as opposed to two guys who are both kind of underwhelming and trying to figure out who you like just a tick more. Yeah. I, I think that in a number of recent seasons, there have been kind of five and six way jumbles for the number one Red Sox spot with, you know, you think about, uh, you think about the, the limitations of a profile of, for instance, of Michael Chavis, who was, uh, you know, who was traded for, uh, who was traded for a left-handed reliever this, uh, this past summer. Like he was a number, he was a, a number one consideration for them. Um, and you're wrestling with that versus, uh, a pitcher coming off of injury with Jay Groom. And, you know, it was, there, there were just a lot of, it's been a while since the Red Sox have had, uh, have had either really high ceiling guys in their system or since they've had guys 
who have advanced to the upper levels while maintaining and in fact building upon their prospect status. So that suggests that, you know, that suggests a, a very different place for the system. One that you could have anticipated a year ago, right? Like I think that um, in, in talking to you and talking to JJ uh, a year ago, um, we had a lot of conversations about, yeah, the Red Sox were ranked 20 because there was no minor league baseball season, but there's a very good chance that when you get these guys back on the field, that there's uh, that their their system might be uh, might have taken might take a very different shape than it had taken because so much of their talent before the pandemic had been clustered in the lower levels, and so you were just waiting to see if it had improved, um, if what if the anticipated developmental steps forward had indeed taken shape, and this year they largely had. Absolutely. You mentioned Nick York earlier, and he was someone who you alluded to last year was a surprise first round pick. Now he was signed for a below slot deal. And in the lead up to the draft, I I do a lot of our West Coast coverage out here at BA, specifically California. And I'd gotten his name fairly early on the process of, hey, you know, this is someone who is kind of on the fringes of draft consideration. But you know what, he's starting to play his way up into, you know, fifth, sixth round, and then you check back a little bit later, even though it was a shortened season, California had gotten underway. They said, you know, this could be a a third, fourth round guy, you know, maybe someone pops him in the second. So he was rising and he was on radars. Uh, We did have him inside our top 100 at BA heading into the draft. He wasn't a nobody by any means, uh, but it was a surprise to see him taken in the first round. And all in all, he went out and, as you kind of mentioned, really justified it this year, hit 325, 412, 516 across both Class A levels, and did that even with a slow start. If you kind of throw out what he did that first month, those numbers are even better. What were evaluators seeing, and realistically, what can Nick York become? He's, what, what an interesting season. And I will say that uh, there, was at least, uh, there was at least one evaluator. There were probably a couple of evaluators who said that there was a case to be made for having him at number one. Uh, based on the utter dominance that he had in his minor in his in his first full minor league season, um, you know, if you think about that track record, a guy hitting 300, 400, 500 in full season ball as a teenager, um, I tried to go through the exercise, the 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 databases that you have available in order to sift through um, in order to sift through that the 300, 400, 500 combination in full season ball aren't perfect because in part because Fangraphs has a great database, but it, it sometimes struggles um, to keep up with guys across levels. But the list of guys who have done that is very, very short and very, very exceptional. It includes, uh, it includes Vlad Jr. It includes Mike Trout in the last 10 years, at least. Uh, it includes uh, Oscar Tavares, um, who looked like he was going to be a great prospect before the tragedy of his uh, of his death. Bo Bichette was another one who was in that list. Um, it was, it was basically five guys, all of whom uh, have, um, all of whom continued into the big leagues as all-star caliber guys. And because of that, you can make a case that uh, th- there are people who are willing to drop 70s on Nick York's hit tool with the possibility of, you know, a power ranging from anywhere from 50 to 60 to maybe even better than that. Because, you know, if, if you're bullish on just how intelligent, um, how good his feel is in the box, then uh, then you can project more on that because the guy was hitting tanks down the stretch. Uh, he, he hit for very little power in Salem, which is a hitter's graveyard uh, through the first few months of the season. But then all of a sudden, boom, it was nine home runs uh, coming awfully fast from August on. And so there's, there's a lot there. Um, the one thing that I struggled with was how much, how do we, how, what, what do we think this year was in terms of, uh, in terms of player evaluation? Uh, what, 
what was the quality of play in full se- in low A this year? Was it equivalent to what had been short season ball? In which case, it's a really good season that York had been having there, but maybe it's not in that kind of like transcendent, exceptional, exceptional category um, based on the fact that, you know, we we lost one quarter of minor league affiliates and there was all this weirdness surrounding uh, who got assigned where in the aftermath of the pandemic. Um, so I think that there needs to be uh, a little bit more track record there to figure out, to get a better feel for what York is and frankly, what everyone is, right? Like this is where we're probably going to be dealing with a couple of years where um, there, there are going to be some pretty interesting mistakes in terms of not just how we, like, you know, how I rank Red Sox guys or how you guys uh, stack up top 30s or the top 100 across the industry, but in terms of how teams figure all of this stuff out. Um, there are uh, a couple of evaluators made the point that there are going to be some some trades that end up being really bad <laughs> uh, involving prospects in one way or the other, um, based on the based on the weirdness of these last couple of years um, and its longer term implications for uh, for player development. So, um, so the question of what can Nick York be uh, a really good hitter, like a really good hitter, and he looked pretty by by most accounts he was fine at second base this year. Um, the Red Sox thought that he was on a good de- developmental trajectory uh, over the course of his season there. There, there are questions about the glove. There's, there are questions about the athleticism uh, for second, but he has, you know, he, he, like, he, like Mayer, has good feel for the game. Like, he has just a good clock. He has, he has a, he, he is a, he loves the game and spends a lot of time uh, thinking about it and, you know, dreaming about it. And, uh, you know, as a result, um, as a result, what might be identified as physical limitations or that, you know, like the issues, issues related to the eye test might not be as, uh, you, you have to set that aside a little bit and see how the playable skills are. But if he ends up moving off of the second base, which is a possibility, uh, then even if he ends up moving to first base as a five foot 10 first baseman, um, then the, the bat looks like it's going to be able to, it looks like it, it's going to be able to play. Yeah, one of the things that was really impressive, and you mentioned trying to figure out what this year meant, we saw particularly at low A, the first month was kind of a mess for everybody, just a lot of guys who were very, very young, getting their first taste of full season ball, or in some cases making their pro debuts because they didn't have the complex levels last year. And even Nick York was not immune to that. That first month of the season in May, he hit 195. But once he kind of found his rhythm and settled in, he hit 361, 450, 598 the rest of the year. So that, to me, I thought was really telling. Really and with great strikeout to walk numbers, right? Like, the you know, more walks than strikeouts over the course of that. So you're looking at a guy with bat to ball, with good strike, with good plate discipline, um, you know, and the slug suggests that he also has enough self-understanding to know which pitches he can juice. Exactly. 14 home runs in that stretch, uh, 44 walks to 48 strikeouts. So close to even you're seeing everything that you want to see in terms of a guy making adjustments. And again, kind of throughout the first month, see what they do after that. And that's when you get a sense of, okay, maybe this is what this guy can really do. Certainly an exciting prospect moving forward. Alex, these were pretty much the clear top three. Jaron Duran at number four, He's gone through a lot of changes with the Red Sox. We've talked about it a lot over the last couple of years. First and foremost, changing positions, going from second base to center field. That's had some stops and starts at times moving in the right direction, but other times looking like a guy who doesn't have a lot of time in center field. And they also changed his swing pretty significantly to get more uphill swing path, lift for more power. 
And we saw some of those results come out in AAA, but in the majors, it was exploited a little bit. He went from being more of a flat swing, more contact guy, hit it in the gaps and run, to a guy who's now trying to lift the ball, but it also results in more strikeouts and less opportunities for him to get on first base and really use his wheels. Where is this going to settle in? Because I feel like just from the outside looking in, and I've seen Jaron Duran since he was at Cypress High School as well as Long Beach State, there, there's a middle ground to be found here. It felt like in the past maybe he was too contact-oriented. Now, just from the outside looking in, it looked like he got way, way, way too power-happy. Where is this going to go next? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, his, his swing changes had started on his own after the 2019 season when he had a, a very successful debut, really good performance in high A that got him to the Futures game, struggled a bit in, uh, in double A, uh, found himself just banging fastballs into the ground uh, over and over, rolling over, and, uh, and he thought that he needed to do something in order to create a cleaner path to pitches on the inside part of the plate. So ends up you know, spending some time with Doug Latta, uh, spend some time, uh, you know, he, he's, you know, so he, he recognized the need to add a dimension of power to his game that didn't exist at that point. Um, it probably has gotten away from him a bit because he's lost some of the athleticism that he had. There's more stiffness to his, uh, to, there's, there's a bit of stiffness to his leg kick that's, uh, that, that's not who he is. And um, he was a bit all over the place this year. There was a lot of experimentation in terms of after having that immense success in AAA, uh, he was getting beaten uh, in, in the big leagues. Uh, they recognized a hole right away uh, in his swing at the top of the zone with his hands being low. Uh, something else that he changed as re- that he changed to becoming uh, less of a direct to the ball guy and becoming more of an on-plane guy. Um, he lowered his hands in a Verdugo-ish fashion. Um, but Verdugo, Verdugo has a flat bat path. It is more direct to the ball with that. Whereas for Duran, it created a hole at the top of the zone when he's trying to get on plane. Um, and then he started experimenting. That's where you're like, oh, okay. Uh, there's, there's some development to be done. The good news for Duran is that he's been athletic. He's, he's proven that he's athletic enough to make adjustments and to have them be successful adjustments, right? Like being able to make the adjustment that he had from AA to AAA um, was significant, and he was able to really succeed at that level. He was able to process what was happening around him, adjust, become, and, and, and be better, um, so that's, that's what the Red Sox hope. Where it ends up, I do not know. That's one of the fascinations about Duran to me. I don't know if he's going to be, you know, if he's going to be a hit over power guy, a power over hit guy. I don't know what his stance, what his swing is ultimately going to look like, because I think that my guess is that there's going to be, there has to be a middle ground, uh, but how he gets to it and exactly what form it takes, I don't know. Um, so there's, there is, for a guy who's already, uh, who's already had terrific performance in AAA, um, who got to the big leagues for a taste, um, there's a, there is a, an interesting amount of uncertainty there. Yeah, I think outside of Marcelo Mayer making his full season debut next year, Jaron Duran and his developments, particularly with his swing, at least to me, are going to be one of the more interesting subplots of the 2022 season for the Red Sox in terms of their prospects, just because if he can find that middle ground where he's hitting the ball hard on the line to the gaps and racing around for doubles and triples and finding pitches he can turn on and drive over the fence, because he does have strength. I've seen him even hit some opposite field home runs. Then he can be a dynamic player, but if he falls too far into just trying to be uphill all the time, you kind of take away what made him good in the first place, which is his ability to line a ball hard, and use his wheels to wreak havoc. So I, I'm going to be fascinated to see what the Red Sox do. I will say you talked about 
their success developing pitching prospects last year being sort of unique in their recent history, there is a pretty good track record here of them developing position player prospects. And so I think with that, there is reason for optimism that ultimately Durant will figure it out. Generally, I agree with you, although there are guys who have been left by the wayside, particularly those who, uh, who, got, who, who were caught in between in terms of uh, hit over power versus power over hit. Um, I, can, uh, I, I still remember uh, very vividly uh, my first top 10 list in which I, uh, I fought with myself for a long time about uh, whether or not uh, how to stack up Darren Cicchini, Blake Swihart, and Mookie Betts. And I ended up going with them in that order from five through seven in that top 10, um, which was a very good system at the time uh, for the Red Sox. This was entering the 20, this was entering the 2014 system uh, season. And obviously, um, obviously with, you know, Chikini and Swihart, you know, Swihart got tastes in the big leagues, but, you know, never, uh, never solidified that in part because their approaches unraveled as they were trying to fight this battle of, oh, okay, I'm, I'm a good natural hitter. I'm a, you know, I, I hit for average. I hit without power. I need to get power in order to become, uh, in order to gain an everyday role. And it fell apart for them um, what, for exactly the reason you talked about. What had been good for them, what had made them good prospects, uh, no longer was part of who they were and what they did. And so that's, you know, that, that puts Duran in an interesting spot and one that is uncertain. That said, they obviously have had a number of success stories uh, in terms of developing players who got to the upper levels, had success in the upper levels, um, into pretty good big leaguers. So we'll see where that happened, what happens with Duran. But again, there's, um, there is an aptitude, there is athleticism um, that is, that, that makes it, you know, that, that gives, that offers plenty of reason for hope for the Red Sox with him. All right, Alex, he's the four that have been in the top 100 and likely will be in the top 100. I want to dive into the rest of the top 10 with you here, but first we're going to take a quick break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we are back with Alex Spear, breaking down the Red Sox top 10 prospects. Alex, we just hit the top of the list, the four guys who have been in the top 100 and most likely will be in the top 100 once again. There's some interesting players here, five through 10. 
I want to start with Jeter Downs. He was the top prospect acquired in the Mookie Betts trade. Alex Verdugo was the top player. He had graduated from prospect status at the time. Downs was considered the best prospect. He just had a very, very strong year in the Dodgers system, got up to double A, spent 2020 at the alternate training site, went to triple A this year, and everything just completely fell apart. Where is he and what's next? He had a bad year, and uh, he had one where it that, that had a lot of people questioning whether or not the Red Sox were too aggressive in pushing a guy who basically only spent a couple of weeks above the A-ball level. He spent at the very end of the 2019 season. He was in double-A for a couple of weeks. Um, he went to the outside last year after the trade, but wasn't great at the outside. Um, but nonetheless, they felt like given, you know, given the age and the fact that he was going to be entering his 40-man year and the exposure uh, to more advanced competition in, in this weird laboratory setting, um, that uh, AAA was the right level for him. And uh, it was just, it was maybe too big of a jump. And his approach, he, he shows really good pitch. He's in the past shown good pitch recognition skills and good strike zone, uh, good strike zone management. Like that was not the case in AAA. He expanded, he started chasing, he started like, he started looking, searching for contact rather than actual impact. Uh, of the baseball and uh, it was it was bad. Uh, it, so there were flashes of a guy who has the ability um, to drive the ball from right center to left field to the pole. You know, from he's he he has a great swing that works really well when he's driving the ball uh, to right center. Um, and he got away from that this year. Uh, he tried he worked to get back to that in the fall league after the season. And credit to him, I guess, for coming off of a long year, a tough year. And still saying, I'm fine with going to the AFL. I'm, I'm fine with getting more reps and trying to continue my development and get back on track. And in the AFL, he started, he had a great start uh, to the AFL in which he was, he had some homers to right center. Um, there were signs of promise that he was getting back to who he was. Uh, and so he's, he's someone who's going to need to repeat at AAA. And uh, if he, if, if he gets back, if he performs, he has a chance to kind of restore his, uh, his prospect track there, I, I don't think anything has changed with regards to his ceiling. Um, second base has become an offensively deficient position in the major leagues. He actually showed better ability to stick at shortstop than I think people have given, given him credit for coming over, um, both in the AFL and in AAA. He, he moved around pretty well where um, he could at least be a serviceable option there, even if a primary second baseman. Um, but there's, there's still a pretty good ceiling of an above average uh, to plus offensive player at second base. Um, but I think that the, the floor is a bit more in question or the likelihood of getting to that ceiling is certainly more in question given the depth of his struggles this year. Yeah, I saw a lot of him when he was at Rancho Cucamonga in the Dodgers system. And one of the things that was an issue at that time was lack of consistent quality of at-bats. He'd have some at-bats where he was dialed in, locked in, and the results played out that way. And others where you could just tell he just was not locked in. He would give at-bats away. And it led to a lot of inconsistencies, a lot of ups and downs. Where was that this year? Yeah, that, that remained the case. There were issues with uh, there were issues with inconsistency. And then there was consistent there was consistency with not being locked in, with just expand with down the stretch, it, it got pretty bad in terms of what, what felt like just his his desperation just to put the ball in play, uh, as opposed to having any kind of an approach. So, you know, he's still a pretty young guy. I, I believe that he uh, I believe that he just turned uh, he just turned 23. Um, and you know, that's kind of where you expect to see players emerging from 
uh, particularly high school guys who, who turn to pro ball after high school, um, find consistency in who they are and thus who they are on the field. And uh, so I do think that this year is going to be awfully telling for him. He talked a lot. I, I got to catch up with him in the Arizona Fall League. He talked at some length about um, about the lessons that he learned this year, about managing adversity, about becoming uh, becoming a more consistent person uh, on the field, at the field, and um, we'll see. We'll see whether or not uh, whether or not he puts those lessons into action in, in 2022. If so, then uh, then he was a top 100 talent entering 2021, and he has a chance to restore his luster. Um, if not, then you're going to see some pretty big falls in his prospect rankings. Yeah, 2022 is definitely going to be a big year for him. Another player who is a very, very prominent name that is in this range is Blaze Jordan. The Red Sox took him in the third round in 2020, paid him an overslot bonus, kind of paired him with Nick York there, getting the underslot bonus in the first round. Went out, pro debut this year, hit very, very well in the Florida Complex League and finished up at Low A Salem. Jordan has been someone people have known about for years, kind of a YouTube sensation as a 13-year-old hitting massive, massive home runs, uh, continued to show off his power. I remember watching him at the high school home run derby in 2019 in Cleveland, hit some absolute moonshots as well, especially when you consider he was young for the class. He reclassified, who so was one of the youngest players in that year's draft. What do the Red Sox have here, and what are the main things to watch as he moves forward in his development? Strikeout rate, I think, is going to be the, the foremost in terms of to, to watch, right? The power is always going to be there. It's, you know, you could drop an 80 on it if you want to, right? Like you talk about the YouTube sensation who's hitting 500 foot home runs. Granted, it's with metal, but that was when he was 13 years old. So um, I, I, I don't know uh, if there's if there's a grade beyond that, then I guess, you know, more power to whom to more power to that person, right? More power. Uh, more power to that scale-breaking person. Um, but it, the strikeout rate is everything for him because uh, he's, seen, he's still at a very young stage in his development. He's still very young, as you point out, because of the reclassification. And uh, it's, it's going to take a little while for him to identify what he thinks his approach should be. Um, but he, he showed, um, I think, some interesting signs at the start of that. I think that there was, uh, there was more consistent bat-to-ball than had been anticipated coming out of high school. Like he didn't strike out an inordinate amount um, as he entered pro ball this year. So I think that that's promising, but uh, yeah, I think that you're looking for a guy, you're looking for someone to uh, be willing to maybe take pitches in certain areas of the strike zone where he can't do much and to focus on those where he can destroy the baseball. All right, Alex. So if I'm counting correctly, this is the sixth Red Sox top 10 prospects podcast I have done with you since I started at BA. And I have asked you one question every single year without fail. And I'm going to ask the exact same question of you again this year. What is Jay Groom's status? <laughs> That's amazing. I hadn't even realized that, uh, that we would be six years into the, uh, six years into the question, but uh, yeah, he, uh, it was, it was an interesting question about whether or not he would fall out of the top 10 this year. Um, but uh, I don't know that, that, it, there's there's got to be some kind of he's got to be closing in on some kind of record for uh, for most top ten appearances by one player. Didn't you have Hunter Harvey for like seven of them with the Orioles? Yeah, Hunter Harvey, Dylan Betances, I think was in there for a, a bunch of times. But yeah, I mean he's he's approaching that family of player. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it's Groom got on the mound this year and was healthy. I think that that is something that had never been seen before from him. 
uh, in his pro career since he was uh, that very tantalizing first round pick in the 2016 draft. And so that's a huge step forward for him. Um, in terms of how the stuff played, you would have evaluators. It was, it was so interesting because scouts would see him basically for the first time in his pro career this year. He's been injured so much that, you, that some guys missed him when he was in Greenville in the 2017 season and then really never got a chance to see him again after that in person because the number of innings that he had accumulated had been so few. Um, so you had evaluators coming out, and there would be bad out, outings that had really bad lines. But oftentimes, especially early in the season, there would be like three dominant innings, and then he would completely fall apart in the fourth inning. Makes sense. The guy hadn't pitched at all, uh, certainly hadn't gone through a lineup multiple times in ages, basically since – you know, since 2017, and even then it wasn't particularly, uh, he, was, he was already kind of banged up at that point. So, um, so you had evaluators coming out and saying, oh, that's, there's, there's some interesting stuff there. Like, at the very least, the way that he can command the fastball, the way that, it, you know, the way that it plays gives him a, a, a pretty good reliever floor, and there might be more there. His curveball has never made it all the way, has still never made it all the way back. He's, uh, he's incorporated a slider at a greater length, but he had, he had a fine year. Like, it was, it was fine. It wasn't exceptional. There were nice flashes to it. There was inconsistency within outings as he was building strength. And then at the very end of the year, he got to Portland and pitched, uh, and pitched his first couple of games of his career in the upper levels, and he struck out everyone. I mean, he was just – he was wiping out double-A <laughs> lineups um, at, the, at the end of the year, which made it seem like he was very eager to get to the upper levels – uh, in his pro career after, um, you know, in his sixth, in his, I, I guess his sixth season as professional, um, and that there is stuff that plays. It's particularly the fastball seems to have uh, a quality of deception to it and command, but the breaking stuff was also playing better than it had uh, in the, in, in, in high A Greenville this year um, before he got promoted. And why that is, I'm not exactly sure, but it, it, it means that he's interesting enough to hold on to top 10 status for, uh, for this season. And now, you know, he's, he's probably not going to be, it's unlikely, I guess that there's an outside chance that he could advance to the big leagues this year, since he'll be in year two on the 40 man roster. Um, more likely, uh, more likely there'll be a conversation about whether or not if he pitches well, then he'll probably be a top 10 guy for the seventh straight year. And we can talk about him again. Uh, or if he doesn't, then he might, then he will drop out of the top 10. One thing that jumped out to me and I do have to ask about, he's now listed at 262 pounds. Obviously he's gotten a lot bigger. Is there any concern there about how big he's gotten? I, I think that there's always been a battle there in terms of his conditioning. Um, he's, he's a big dude. He always has been. He was drafted as a big dude and he's remained a big dude. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's, this was a hard year in terms of, uh, in terms of con how everyone approached conditioning uh, on their own. And, uh, and I, I think that there's always been hope with groom that, you know, like his, you know, his, he is, uh, he is, his heart is in the right place. Uh, he is, uh, he's committed to being a good teammate, being a good, you know, being a, a good citizen in the organization. Um, and it's a matter of, of getting there and, you know, and kind of finding the right routines that allow him to be at his healthiest peak. But um, I, I think that, it's there are times when at a at a big weight at a you know at the 250 to 260 vicinity he's been considered to be in, in pretty good shape and there have been times when 
it's felt a little bit iffier. Yeah, again, just something to keep an eye on moving forward. Alex, as we kind of wrap up here at this top 10, how many guys in the top 10 would you say were surefire going to be top 10 prospects? And how many guys were sort of on the fringe a little bit? And what did the back of the list kind of look like? Yeah, I think that it was uh, it was largely clear to me. I think that um, in terms of in terms of the top ten, I think that I, I, I think that Groom was probably the you know was Groom was probably the the biggest borderline case for me. Um, and then beyond that, I, I think that probably nine were pretty clearly in the upper echelon. Maybe I, I guess you could make a case that it was more like eight, but I, I'd say nine were pretty clearly in for me. So uh, the there, there's a group of pitchers uh, in which groom of which groom is a part um, that is that's very different and that uh, and that offers a lot of interesting arguments. Um, it's it skews left-handed. You know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about groom versus uh, versus this group of pitchers. Uh, Wilcomin Gonzalez, who's a right-handed teenager, who's uh, who uh, spent most of the year in the Florida Complex League, but got up to Salem at the very end of the year. Um, and the Red Sox have loved him since they signed him, uh, since they signed him as a 16-year-old, uh, and think that he has uh, a mix to be a pretty special guy. Um, there's this guy who came from out of nowhere, Brandon Walter, who's utterly fascinating. Like he was, he, he was a, th- a day three draftee in 2019, coming off of Tommy John um, in his fourth college season. He was a redshirt junior, and uh, he was like. He had fringy stuff, but, you know, but threw strikes and he was left-handed. And then he used the shutdown time to really rework himself and his stuff exploded. Like he was, you know, they, the Red Sox didn't know exactly what they had. He was pitching out of the bullpen to start the year, but in Salem, uh, but was so dominant with three pitches um, and with pitch data that was just like, pow, 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 that, uh, that they, that he had to move into the rotation and he had to move up. Um, and so he was a guy who's, who came from out of nowhere. Like I didn't even have him. I had him nowhere in my sights as a top 30 guy or a top 50 guy or anything else entering this year. Uh, and he was in consideration for the top 10. And then another guy who you might, who you probably have some familiarity with uh, dating to his amateur days, Chris Murphy, who's, uh, who's a lefty, who's just competes really, really well. Um, he, he is uh, a really smart pitcher who is, um, who likes thinking about pitch data and how to maximize his arsenal and who's made some interesting adjustments along the way and probably will continue to do so and has shown flashes of being very, very good. Uh, he, had, he was named Pitcher of the Week in the AA Eastern League a couple of times at the end of, at the, end of the season after being promoted there. Um, he was also in the conversation. So you have this group of, uh, of starting pitchers that, you know, starting pitchers are all over the place in terms of where you're going to evaluate them. Um, as a general rule of thumb, but that's why what we were talking about at the beginning, the signs that the Red Sox are showing of being able to help uh, young pitchers go from the minor leagues, getting over the hump and being able to contribute in the big leagues, like that's everything to them moving forward. It's something a lot of teams have tried to figure out, not all of them successfully. And if the Red Sox, as you mentioned, are able to maintain this positive momentum in that direction, that's only going to bode well for their future. And things already look bright. So you add that on top of it, who knows, maybe we could get back to the point where the Red Sox are once again competing annually for division titles and, and winning multiple World Series in three, four, five-year spans. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your insight as always. It's great catching up with you and 
enjoy, enjoy. I was going to say enjoy the off season, but I guess it's enjoy the lockout. <laughs> <laughs> Family time in front of us. We can just do more conversations about prospects and look forward to uh, podcast number seven, whenever that may be, Kyle. Absolutely, Alex. All right. Once again, everyone, that was Alex Spear with the Boston Globe discussing the Red Sox top 10. This has been another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Alex, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody.